So it's my pleasure to be here today at the Foundation for Middle East Peace uh, to welcome everyone, listeners, to another edition of our podcast, Occupied Thoughts. Uh, I am Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. And it is my great pleasure to have with us as a guest in our office today, my friend Khaled El-Gindi. Um, welcome, Thanks. Khaled. Happy to be here. Khaled is probably well known to our listeners. Uh, he is a brilliant member of the Washington Intelligentsia on Israel-Palestine and has recently published a very well-received book entitled Blind Spot about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is fabulous. It's so fabulous that I wrote a blurb for it. Um, so we'll be talking to him a little bit about that. I also want to introduce my colleagues here. We have Kristen McCarthy Hello. and Phil Swigart. Uh, this is the Foundation for Middle East Peace Team. So we are going to be interrogating Khaled and talking about the issues friendly more broadly. A friendly interrogation. We're all friends here. So just to get started, first of all, yippee and kudos, because the book has hit <clears> with a bang. Um, and I, I'm so pleased to see that. You've been doing a lot of interviews, a lot of events, and you've done at least one podcast that I know about because it was with our own Peter Beinart. So listeners should check that out. Um, links available at the same place you went to get the link to this one. What I want to ask you, since you're doing a lot of events already about the book in general, talk to us a little bit about what's most surprising to you about how the book is being received. Um, I think that the thing that is most surprising to me is the fact that there are still people who are surprised by some of the things that I'm saying, um, which is, number one, that the peace process is dead. Um, and actually, I've been arguing for the past several years, even before I actually started the book, that the peace process was dead or dying. Um, and, and now we can say definitively that it is dead. Um, but we can't say that we didn't have any warning because it has been dying a sort of slow agonizing death and part of that agony i think is the denial um, in so much of the washington uh, policy community uh, you know there's they've been in denial for so long that they couldn't accept that the oswald process was was sort of being dismantled bit by bit um, and, and so i i find it a little bit surprising that there are still some pockets of denial out there uh, in in the kind of policy world. I mean, it's striking. You and I have both been in this world long enough to have heard a whole lot of metaphors about is it half dead? Is it mostly dead? Can it be shocked back to life? Um, it, it's striking the, the, the story you tell, and your book is basically a ton of facts, right? This is not an argument. It is facts laying out a very clear path. The facts as you lay them out lead to a, I think, unavoidable conclusion that whether it is by um, bad management on the U.S. side or bad intentions, there has been a slow process of systematically dismantling any possibility of keeping a real peace process going uh, into the future. I mean, whether it was deliberate or not, that's where we are today. There's nothing to bring back to life. Right. Right. Can I ask, Khaled, if you use the death of the... When you say the peace process is dead, do you use peace process interchangeably with two-state solution or one-state solution? Or how do you differentiate between those two and are they both dead? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. I usually distinguish between the two because peace pro, you know, two-state solution is an end. It's a goal that, that supposedly we've been trying to achieve. Uh, the peace process is the means of how we are supposed to get there. And a peace process is like any, you know, specifically I'm talking about the Oslo peace process in its various 
including how it has evolved. Um, so not just the accords, but the various institutions, frameworks, um, uh, things like the roadmap, the quartet, they're all part of the, the Oslo peace process. And um, so that's what I mean uh, by the, the, the process itself is dead, which sort of, even though theoretically a two-state solution can still be achieved, if we don't have a credible process to get us there, uh, then I don't see how it's how it's doable. Um, in addition to the fact that, you know, um, the 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 American and Israeli governments are more or less um, beyond a two-state solution. They're they're sort of post not only post Oslo but post two-state solution. And so, if the two most powerful actors in this whole process are 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 sort of done with the two-state solution. Then again, how do we get there? I think for all intents and purposes, it's a two-state solution is probably dead, but it's still theoretically possible. I mean, sorry, the, the, the question on the two states versus process is really important because at this point, so much of the rhetoric in the city is about, okay, we all still agree on the outcome. We have to get the process back going to get to that outcome. Right. And the question <laughs> is that both the outcome and the process are, are in question. The process right. itself, as you've laid out in the book very clearly, and I agree with you 100%, the process is dead. It's not just discredited, it no longer is possible. The outcome itself is in, in question whether or not people even want to get there. Right. Um, and those two things have to really be, I think... In sync. They, they have to be in sync, but they have to be understood to be right now separate questions. Right. Do you have something? Yeah, I, I had a question. Basically, if, if the process is... If, why do you think people are surprised that the process is dead? Um, you know, there haven't been any negotiations, direct negotiations for five years. So, right. you know, I guess my question would be, why do you think people still think that this is a this is a route that we can take to get to? Well, I mean, part of it is that well, we still have some of the vestiges of the process that are still intact. We still remarkably have a Palestinian authority. I don't know how it's sort of limping along. Um, but could collapse at any, uh, you know, any minute. It's been deprived of, of resources. So it's not, it's not clear how that will continue. But I think a lot of it has to do with just denial. You know, the, so, many of the, so many folks in the Washington establishment have been so attached to the Oslo framework um, and exclusively the Oslo framework that they can't think of anything else. Um, and so this has been the only process that we've known. And so if it's not working, um, you either have to come up with a new process um, or a new solution, uh, a new outcome that you're working towards, not a two-state solution. And, and I think most people just don't want to do that. It's, it's, it's hard work. Um, and so it's easier to fall back and sort of rationalize and, and kind of be in denial that, well, yes, there's a set, this is, there's a, not one setback, but many setbacks. Um, setbacks can be overcome. Settlements can be reversed. You know, we've heard all the rationalizations over the years. Um, and all of that is theoretically true, but if you look at the trend lines, um, whether it's Israeli politics or American politics or Palestinian politics or the regional situation, everything, the, the facts on the ground, settlements, home demolitions, all of these things, Every possible indicator that you could look at is working against a two-state outcome. Um, and so, you know, 
it's we have to come to grips with that otherwise we you know we can't even dream of saving whatever might remain of a two-state solution i know laura and i have <laughs> have some some differences on this but um it's so much rooted in denial i think if i could also add to that i mean something interesting i think that came up when you and i were writing our last piece about <clears throat> sort of how we think people should look going forward right how to get out of these out of denial out of the rut um, I mean, one idea that I kept coming back to in my own thinking was this idea. It's not just that it's hard work to come up with a new paradigm or to come up with new thinking. It's that people truly don't want to. Um, the, the idea of talking about two states and the Middle East peace process and if we can just get the parties to negotiate that, uh, this has become a political safe space, right? It's got bipartisan kosher stamp. It is at least theoretically until recently um, got the the support of the Israelis. This was like one of the only safe places you could sit on Israel-Palestine where you could say much of anything and say, listen, this is part of the consensus. Right. And nobody wants to step a toe out of that consensus, or not nobody. But a lot of folks just want to, you know, when, when you and I were, were sort of debating how to talk about this, not debating, we agree on most of it, but discussing how to talk about this, there's a sense that you know people just don't want to, to bring up to, to put themselves out there to be attacked, right? Right, because there's so, a political cost exactly. associated so with that. So it's easier just to keep saying the same thing over and over. Even if it doesn't work. And say, what, I, what we're saying is the one pro-peace way to talk about things. And if you're, not, if you're not talking about it the way we are, whether you're the left or the right, you are bad and we are good. Right. And that's, a, a, that's so far out of sync <laughs> with current reality. With reality, yeah. absolutely. And, and I think that's one, um, it's one kind of, inadvertent advantage that the Trump administration has given us, you know, and this is a bit of a counterfactual, but if Hillary Clinton had been president, I think you and I would agree that we probably would be seeing more of the same as we saw under Obama, the pretense of a peace process, even though none of it's working. Um, and, and we'd all sort of be kind of clinging to this, this denial or this zombie of a, of a peace process. What Trump has given us is kind of, he's, he's pulled back the curtain. So there's no more pretense. Yeah. They don't claim to be opposed to settlements with a wink and a nod. Um, they're just okay with settlements. You know, they don't claim to support a two-state solution. Um, there was some, you know, kind of half-hearted mention at some point of a two-state solution, but they're now formally talking about other options, uh, whatever those may be. So Trump has given us the, the benefit of clarity. And that clarity, I think, is, is useful to shake people out of their denial, um, if nothing else. So if I can ask both of you um, about the piece that you recently wrote in Foreign Policy, it's entitled The End of Oslo is an Opportunity, which you've been referencing. Um, we didn't give it that title. <laughs> <laughs> Not a terrible title. I've seen worse. Um, so I think one of the provocative ideas there is that there's no going back to the status quo that was. And there's a lot of uh, Washington um, experts who want to take us back to this safe, safe, safe place that you've mentioned. So can you give texture to that? What, are, what do you see as kind of the pillars of that safe space that people are trying to return us back to or set the conversation back to? And then what did you offer as kind of new pillars for moving forward, things that need to be looked at in a different way. If, if you don't have the answer to those, then like, what are those conversation starters? Well, I mean, I think when when Helen and I started talking about this, we both agreed 
that the, you know, if you look at the statements that are coming out of what some people have called the Washington blob, um, and if you look at some of the articles that are being written by former members of Congress, or the people who hold themselves out as the, the purveyors of reasonable views, right? Um, what you essentially hear people saying is, if you want to be pro-Israel and pro-peace, this is the way to do it. And then you have a pretty clear articulation of the Obama administration's policy. And, and what we agreed, I think, from the start was, A, even if it were possible to go back to that policy, why would you make it your goal to return to a policy that was failing and that was the fruit of what had been at that point years of failure, where all of the evidence on the ground showed things going in the wrong direction? And moreover, that it's, it's delusional because there is no going back. This administration, together with, the, with their colleagues, their friends in the Israeli government, is systematically engaged in a scorched earth policy. The goal is to make sure you can't roll, you can't simply turn the clock back. And you know, Ambassador Friedman made this very clear in his speech at APAC when he said, how can we leave? Is this, it's this almost like, you know, speaking in church kind of voice of, you know, how can we leave for, how will we look at our children if we have failed to do everything we can while we have the most, as they would say, pro-Israel president in history. So it's neither possible to go back, nor if it were possible, would it be desirable, which then I think forces people to say, well, if not that, then what instead? And that's what we are trying to begin a conversation on. Right. Take it from here. <clears throat> well, no, I mean, obviously, um, that's exactly right. And, and what we were trying to argue in that piece is that if you are serious about a two-state solution, you have to do things radically different than what had been done so far. And that means a totally different approach. It means being able to use American leverage, not just with the weak side. Um, American policymakers are really good at devising all kinds of sanctions and, and uh, pressures uh, on, on the Palestinians. But on the, on the more powerful side, the, the, the side that is actually the occupying power. Um, and, and that entails a political cost, or at least there are political risks. And so if you want to save a two-state solution, it might be possible, but you have to be prepared to, to be able to talk about things like Palestinian rights, to be able to talk about things like imposing some sort of a cost on Israeli actions that undermine the goals of peace, whether it's excessive force or settlement building or, or any of these kinds of things that, that have usually gotten a pass uh, by American policymakers. So if you're willing to do those things, then you have a shot at, at, at maybe salvaging what's left of a two-state solution. Um, if, if you're not, then be ready for the discourse to move inevitably by Palestinians and those who support Palestinians towards the idea of one person, one vote in one state. And, and I think that's already where Palestinian politics is, is moving. It might take a generation for that view to mature politically. But um, there's a narrow window of opportunity uh, left. And maybe I'm more optimistic on this. And I, I certainly don't intend. I'm not saying that it's likely. I'm saying it's, it's the last best chance that anyone has. Yeah, so I mean, you and I spent a lot of time talking about the, the shifts that we've seen in the domestic political climate, um, which I know is something you and I are both thinking a lot about. And I, I, that was reflected in the piece, I think, a great deal. The idea that it isn't just 
Okay, here's a couple. Here's a couple wonks. We're part of the wonkosphere. I think I've just created a word there. The wonkocracy. The wonkocracy. <laughs> we're part of the wonkocracy. A couple of wonks saying, "Here's what you need to do if you want to succeed." Maybe we're answering a question nobody's asking, but the fact is, this question is being asked. It's being asked at the grassroots level across this country. There are shifts in the demographics in this country. They are amongst the Jewish population, amongst the progressives who have ties with Palestinians, and more broadly, progressives across the board. And you see this with a shifting debate in Congress. You see it, I would argue, for quite a while now with the, um, the effort to close the space for public debate. The more people want to debate this in public, the more desperately people try to close that space. The more you see efforts... Um, to, to actually discuss Palestinians as a human rights and international law issue, the more you see people saying, ah, any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism. These things you know, reflect some, some changes here. And the fact that you know, at a grassroots level, and it's not just Ilhan Omar, it's not just Rashida Tlaib, it's not just the growth of student movements, across the country, maybe this is also going back to Khaled, what you said about Trump sort of, you know, shining a spotlight on some things in a good way, whether, I mean, I still wish maybe this isn't how things were happening, but it is, you know, the fact is that Americans at a, at a very, at a grassroots level are saying, we're not going to see our constitution eroded to have an Israel exception to free speech. Would they have said that 10 years ago? It wasn't such an issue 10 years ago, because 10 years ago, the forces that didn't want us talking about Israel-Palestine weren't really worried that the grassroots was going to get too critical. So, you know, if you're speaking to like a political class, okay, as wonks, you know, Khaled and I can give our advice on how we think you should do this if you're trying to succeed. We can also say, though, looking at the political tea leaves, when I talk about the safe space disappearing, the safe political space to pretend that just saying two states in peace process is enough, I'm sorry, at this point, you say that, you're going to get attacked by the right, because if you're even saying two states, you're now critical of Israel. And you're going to be attacked by the left for, you know, people laughing. I've started just tweeting out hopes and prayers, hopes and prayers. Every time anybody puts out a statement of saying, we're really concerned about settlements, unless you're going to say more than concerned about settlements and worried about the two-state solution, you're just giving hopes and prayers after a school shooting. And, and that's not going to do it. And by the way, I think we're... I don't want to say prescient, but it's kind of fun that you know, this was published a couple months ago now, and really shortly thereafter, we started seeing a public, dis a public debate, really for the first time I've seen it maybe ever, about whether or not there needs to be a discussion about conditions on aid to Israel. I mean, whether you think the answer is yes or no, it's remarkable that we're actually, to some extent, starting to have that debate now. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, <clears throat> it, it's really remarkable to me, and it's one reason... <clears throat> it's one reason why I took such a long view in the book, why I wanted to look at the whole hundred years, um, because, you know, in doing that, I realized that there, we haven't had a debate, a real honest debate on Israel and Palestine in this country in almost half a century. Yep. It's been since at least, I think, the mid-1970s um, when, and, and, and I would say that period really did qualify as a as a genuine debate. You had Palestinian voices um, being actively sought out on Capitol Hill and and not necessarily listened to in terms of, you know, they're listening to their advice or, or recommendations, but there was an openness to listening to that. One of the ironies of the U.S.-led peace process is that really since the 1990s, especially, there's been a narrowing of 
uh, of that space for debate. Um, and, and we start to hear terms like bipartisan consensus on Israel. There wasn't always a bipartisan consensus uh, on Israel. There was always a pretty solid majority of support, particularly on Capitol Hill, for Israel going back to the 70s and 80s and, and, and even before then. Um, but you had dissenting voices, and dissenting voices were, were considered acceptable um, relative to where we are today. So you had people, for example, even though there was a ban on dealing with the PLO, you had members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats, who would go out to Beirut and sit with Yasser Arafat in defiance of that policy. Um, after the Oslo process, we saw kind of the elimination of any real dissent uh, and the emergence of this very strong bipartisan consensus. Um, since the collapse of the Oslo process, we're seeing, you know, Lara, you're absolutely right. We're seeing the shift in U.S. demographics and in U.S. politics, and it's happening on both ends of the spectrum. The, on the right, they're moving away from two states, so they're sort of moving away from the old bipartisan consensus uh, uh, on, that, on that level. And, and certainly on the left, uh, they're, they're becoming much more vocal uh, about wanting to stand up for Palestinian rights. And so that polarization has left all those folks in the middle very, very uncomfortable. Um, but it's also that polarization that creates the space that we now have to finally have an honest discussion about all the reasons that the peace process failed, um, what, what, what's worked and what, what hasn't worked. Um, and to start kind of touching on some of the taboo issues like putting pressure on Israel, like some sort of cost or sanction on Israeli behavior, and, um, and talking about Palestinian rights. Um, you know, as remarkable as it sounds, even liberals today have a very hard time saying the two words right after each other, Palestinian rights, or even talking about Israeli occupation. We saw that debate happen in the Democratic Party four years ago, or in, in 2016, um, where they chose to not reference specifically Israel's occupation. So this is... Um, this is a unique moment, I think, where we have the opportunity to have a debate that we didn't have before. But it's, it also makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Well, it's a, I mean, it, it's definitely a sort of a, it's a high opportunity, high risk moment. Right. I mean, as we see, <laughs> as I said before, you know, as, as this becomes a more real debate, the, fo the forces that want to close that down are working harder than ever. Um, when we have a synagogue shooting that is immediately exploited as an argument for shutting down criticism of Israel, right? That happened now in two consecutive, right. two consecutive synagogue shootings. Immediately, people have used that to leverage attacks on people who have criticized Israel. It's quite extraordinary, <clears throat> and with legislation and you know all the stuff that that some of us um, obsess about all the time. There's definitely this moment of intense opportunity, but also. Um, intense risk. And I think it's a test that we still don't know if progressives are going to pass. Right. Um, I, I look at, I, you know, speaking as someone who worked for years inside the Jewish community, you know, I argued with friends and colleagues for years um, after the, the start of the Second Intifada when people started to lose sort of faith in the peace process and is there a partner. And I remember saying to some friends of mine, it sort of felt like if before Oslo, the forces for peace, so thinking in Israel and the Jewish community, they were like a bunch of people in rowboats on the high seas navigating by the stars. And the stars were, you know, human rights, rule of law, right and wrong, and you know, they're basic things. 
and then and then suddenly we had the big cruise ship of Oslo and a lot of people suddenly jumped into rowboats and everybody started steering in the wake of the Oslo cruise ship and when that cruise ship you know ran aground or went off course people did not remember how to navigate by the stars anymore and I'm not sure that a lot of the mainstream groups that consider themselves pro-peace have figured that out again or even members of Congress or anyone else. It doesn't mean they're not genuinely caring about the Palestinians and caring about peace, but they've actually for so long existed in this safe space where you just travel in the wake of what is now consensus and popular. They don't remember what it means to actually have to navigate by the stars and be courageous out there on the seas, you know, taking waves, you know, getting hit by waves. Right. And, and that sucks, it's no fun getting hit by waves. But at this point, if you're not gonna stand up for the free speech of Americans, <laughs> um, even if you're, you're saying, you know what, I don't wanna to go too far on the limb for Palestinians, if you're not willing to stand up for the free speech of Americans, this is a bigger problem than your policy in Israel-Palestine. And that's the test that I think is being, being created today for progressives, whether they want it or not. Yeah, and I, I, think you're, I think you're right. Obviously, you know uh, the conversation inside the Jewish community better, better than I do, but and I would say I think it's important also to point out that this isn't purely an American failing uh, or an Israeli failing. I think there is real Palestinian culpability in, in terms of, you know, this was, this was a choice that the, that the PLO leadership made to put all of their eggs, and I mean that literally, exclusively in the American basket in the hope that the United States is the only power that can impress upon Israel uh, or, or encourage Israel to do what's needed to lead to eventually to a Palestinian state. Um, and they're now paying the price for that, for not having a plan B. Um, they're sort of, you know, flailing now in search of a strategy because, you know, since Trump's uh, Jerusalem proclamation, that has taken the American strategy, you know, off the table. Um, but one of the key failings, I think, one of the many failings of the Palestinian leadership in approaching this peace process is, and this is going to sound a little bit strange, but it, the sort of uber pragmatic approach that they've adopted, um, where their entire goal, I mean, the way they framed the issue was always as, look, a two-state solution is in America's you know, vital national security interests. They were kind of echoing the, the words uh, from in the intelligence community, um, and they were playing on that and saying, well, if this is a vital national security interest, then we stand to gain. But one thing that they never did, um, was, or that they did very poorly, was to try and frame it in ideological terms that the American public could relate to. And so that's, you know, that's created a gap between um, you know, where the Palestinian leadership is and where, let's say, the Palestinian solidarity movement is. So they didn't really talk about, um, you know, Palestinian, I mean, they, they used standard talking points about Palestinian statehood and self-determination, but they didn't really frame their struggle uh, in terms that the American public could, uh, could relate to. And I think that's something that a future Palestinian leadership is going to have to um, is going to have to remedy um, if they're going to be seen as a credible leadership. Essentially, I mean, a mirror a mirror image of that in some ways in my mind. Um, I remember when I first came to work on this issue in in the Jewish world, and I remember the first time I heard the demographic argument articulated to me, um, which is the argument that Israel needs to have a two state solution, or it will have to choose between between being a democracy 
and a Jewish state. Right. And I remember at the time saying to someone that I, I hate that argument, that argument is really racist. And the answer was, well, nobody loves it, but it's the only thing that's going to convince Israelis and American Jews that Israel needs to make peace, and so that's our best argument. And and we all, I mean, I'm fine, I accept that. We used we use that argument because I think, like you said, the Palestinians decided the, the U.S. national security interest was the most pragmatic and therefore would be effective, so we won't, they, they said we won't talk about morality or national law. So fine, we said, let's talk about Jewish or democratic, you know, go to your gut tribal self-interest. Along the way, we basically helped establish the demographic argument as a talking point for the Israeli right, right? right. So when Netanyahu says, you know, come to the polls, the Arabs are coming, you have to, it basically waves this racist argument for why more Israeli Jews should vote, and we get upset that there's, there's, there's a problem there. We help build up that argument. Um, you know, the whole framing that the only way we could talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict being resolved was to set aside the fundamental legal and moral issues right. and sort of sanitize them with these talking points that would work for either side or for the international community and somehow not make people deal with those underlying issues, that seems to have failed. And I'm not sure it had to have failed. I'm not sure. If Rabin had lived, maybe, maybe things would be different. If someone had moved on Geneva, maybe things would be different. But it doesn't matter. We're here today. Yeah. And, and these, we, now have, we can now look back and say, wow, a process based on um, constructive ambiguity, um, no accountability, and for one side, for one side, and a process based for both sides on trying to adapt what we think, what, what you're told or are led to believe or come to believe, are the most politically effective arguments as opposed to the arguments that actually underlie the justice of your cause and the rightness of your objective. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, we can learn from that. Yeah, and, and I think it's also a trap that the Palestinian leadership fell into because they often um, used similar talking points about, you know, look, this is, this is in Israel's best interest. And, and if you look at how the PLO came into a dialogue or a relationship with the United States, it was through uh, Jewish groups. Um, it was, they, had, it, they had decided on the strategy that the, the road to Palestinian statehood goes through Washington, but the road to Washington goes through the American Jewish community. And so they had a very elaborate strategy for outreach to, um, to you know, to prominent Jewish leaders. And, uh, and, and so they, Which in again, a way, I think it could have worked. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think there's anything in history that says tactic. it could not have worked. Yeah. It could have worked as a tactic to, as their entree into, you know, into Washington, but instead it became um, it became the 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 end itself, yeah. and and they never really they never you know as I said they never really framed their struggle um, in in rights terms or in in moral terms the way you know they could have easily capitalized on those relationships once they had access, but they were so focused on not just Washington but on the executive branch on the president and the secretary of state above. Uh, all else that they that they completely neglected the other key actor in this, which was the U.S. Congress, and so they came to Washington in in 1993. Yasser Arafat was hosted at the White House, and he was thrilled to be a guest of Bill Clinton. Uh, but they overlooked the fact that all of these anti-PLO laws that had been passed over the over the decades were still on the books with these you know exemptions and and waivers and and carve-outs, um, but they were still basically on the books, and those became 
the, 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 the kind of landmines, these time bombs that exploded later on, um, as, as we saw with things like the Jerusalem Embassy Act and the PLO mission. These were all Oslo era laws, um, uh, or in some cases before Oslo, that then matured and sort of, you know, the, the, the poison pill laws that kind of destroyed the process later on. And they didn't pay attention to that part. So they didn't pay attention to the American public. They didn't pay attention to the, to the Congress, except when they were trying to get their, um, their appropriation, uh, you know, requests. Um, but everything depended on these outside actors. And, and um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a deficiency that I think any future Palestinian leadership is going to have to remedy. So how do we get to a future, how do we get to the next stage here in the States? I mean, you and I wrote our piece. Hopefully everyone reads it and does exactly what we say because that's how things work. No. Um, but I mean, what is, what is the next, what does the next period look like? I'm very focused on all the lawfare against free speech and against NGOs. And I tend to right now take a very, um, a very pessimistic view. Um, because even while I think people are trying to do good things and good things are happening in the sort of grassroots level, I think there's now basically an industry that has developed um, that is working assiduously um, to, to, to erect more obstacles um, and to put into place more landmines like what we saw in the 70s and 80s, that legislation which just sits there and you, know, you can do whatever you want diplomatically, but at the end of the day, this law now exists. I, I think we're in a new period of laying those kind of landmines. Um, do you have, offer, offer something more optimistic for our listeners than that. I mean, I, I, on one hand, I share your pessimism. Uh, we are living in a really uh, illiberal moment, uh, if not Orwellian on, on so many levels, in this country, in the region, and, and even globally. Um, and so that trend is there. There's a nativist, populist, kind of, you know, ethnocentric, xenophobic trend that has gripped, pol you know, politics in, uh, in the United States. Um, but I do think also that there's a, there's a, there's a price to pay for, for overreach. And I think the, what we're seeing now is a real triumphalism on the part of the pro-Israel right and its mirror image in American politics. And they sort of feel victorious. We won, we've defeated the Palestinian National Project, um, and now it's just basically laying out the terms of the other side's surrender. Um, but, and you know, all of these laws designed to ban BDS or boycotts uh, with all of their free speech implications, I think there's a, there's a, it's, at a certain point, the pendulum has to start to swing the other direction. And I think it starts to swing when, you know, when the other side overreaches too far. And, and I think these types of laws really, um, really raise a red flag for even folks like, you know, folks in the, in the pro-Israel establishment um, who are very uncomfortable with, uh, you know, it's one thing to be staunchly pro-Israel. It's another thing to be staunchly pro-Israel to the point of undermining your own constitutional rights. And so, yes, a lot of folks are willing to give that a pass. But, but I think there are enough folks who are uncomfortable with that that it will trigger a backlash, or at least could trigger uh, a backlash. And maybe we'll start to see the pendulum swing in the other direction. Um, so that's the, you know, obviously uh, very hypothetical situation. 
we don't know where that where that red line is that gets crossed that triggers that backlash exactly um, but we can bank on the fact that they're going to keep pushing um, in, in that direction, that illiberal anti-First Amendment direction. Um, and, and eventually there will be a backlash, not just in the courts, but also, I think, politically. I have one more question. I'm getting, I'm getting the wrap it up signal from Kristen. I have one more question, totally hypothetical. You, as someone who's worked on the, on the ground on this issue for years, you know the insides, the insides and outs of Palestinian politics. So looking ahead for the next, before the end of this current presidential term, um, we are now talking about the possibility of annexation, very realistically, as Kristen has been documenting for years now. We are actually in an era of de facto annexation, but Israel moving to actually say we are annexing, and with Golan, whether or not the Trump administration would accept that is it, it, actually not that much of an open question. So how does the Palestinian, the Palestinian leadership um, continue at that point. What what is what does it look what does it look like for there to be a Palestinian national movement um, after annexation? That may be too big of a question to end with. I'm getting looks <laughs> of terror from my colleagues. Okay, you, it, very briefly, we can come back to this again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, annexation. I mean, first of all, the the Palestinian national movement is probably at its lowest point in ever in its in its history. One, certainly, one of its lowest points. Um, and, and, and that's true even before we consider the possibility of, of annexation. Annexation might actually end up galvanizing the Palestinian national movement, which is now divided and fragmented and utterly dysfunctional, whether you're looking at the PA leadership in Ramallah or the Hamas Authority in Gaza. They both, um, I think, are failing in major ways in the eyes of, of their own constituencies. Um, annexation might be a moment, it could exacerbate that fragmentation, or it could, um, it's sort of, you know, once you take the idea of Palestinian statehood off the table, which I think annexation does do, uh, then that might trigger a kind of new uh, movement to reform Palestinian politics and, and develop a, a new strategy based on, first and foremost, Palestinian national unity. That's the optimistic uh, theoretical scenario. But um... all right, we'll, we'll we'll end with an optimistic theoretical scenario because reality right now is not that optimistic. So thank you so much, Khaled Al Gindi, for joining us on Occupied Thoughts. Thanks to my colleagues, Kristen and Phil. I'm Lara Friedman, and tune in soon for another episode. Thank you for listening.